Our Father, as we celebrate this Independence Day, we recognize, Lord, that true independence comes through our faith in Jesus Christ, independence from the evil system of this world, independence from the slavery to sin that we were locked into before we came to know Christ. And in turn, Lord, we have surrendered to you, and that has granted to us the ability to have freedom, the freedom for which uh, the flag of this country has stood for so many years in the physical realm, we have in the spiritual realm because of what Christ has done. We're so grateful, Lord, to you. And we're so grateful that no matter what happens politically, militarily, or economically in this world, our hope is fixed in you. And you have promised and you have given to us, of course, so many examples in your word to meet the needs of your people and to help us through difficult times as well as good times. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to fellowship together this morning. And I pray that your word will speak to our hearts, even though we're talking of peoples who have largely disappeared from the face of the earth, at least as identifiable peoples, we know that the principles, the truths that are found here are the same for us today as they were in the day with, uh, that we are considering. So we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. You should have uh, page 28 of your outline in front of you. We're reading in Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse 15. Again, this is one of those uh, soul-smiting passages, so be prepared. <laughs> and Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterwards, the family of the Canaanite, families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. And the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Again, let me just remind us that as we read that particular passage, it is looking beyond Genesis 11 when it says, by their languages, plural, because we know that it is in chapter 11 that the stories were counted of the confounding of the languages and thus the beginning of the major language families and the division. And so this, of course, is looking in beyond that particular event. We've looked a little bit at the family of Ham already, and the Egyptians and uh, the people of Libya and the people of Ethiopia, and we've seen how they were influential on the children of Israel, the Israelites. But of course, the people we're looking at today were more directly so, particularly after the sojourn in Egypt was completed. And the term Canaanite, we discover over and over again, is used in a way to imply the evil system of this world. And of course, you've probably heard messages, as I have, where someone takes the term Canaanite and brings it into uh, our modern culture and talks about the Canaanites which we face. Now the Canaanites which we face aren't called Hivites and Jebusites and so forth, but they're every much as real. And of course the power behind the Canaanites as they were in opposition to the Israelites is the same power 
that we face today. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And I think it's important that we remember that. It's so easy to constantly have our eyes fixed upon the physical problem in front of us and not to realize that there is a spiritual reality behind this, and it is the spiritual warfare that is the real struggle that we face day by day. I think sometimes we're tempted to think that, well, you know, we're not much of anybody. I just go to my job every day. I come home. I have my children. I, yes, I go to church, but why, why should the enemy be care, caring about me? Why should there be such spiritual warfare in my life? Because I'm not a anybody. I'm not a great threat to his kingdom. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a threat to his kingdom. We are servants of Jesus Christ, and he has promised to perfect his work in us. As a result, the enemy is in opposition to us individually. This branch of the line of Ham, as we see it recorded here, would profoundly impact the history of the Hebrew nation. The Canaanites settled in and around the land which we have historically called Canaan, which became Israel, which became Palestine, which became many different lands. Utramer was the famous European term for the land. Uh, during the medieval world, and of course the Holy Land, the Promised Land, all kinds of terms which are used to refer to what is today the modern state of Israel and the surrounding nations. Numerous Canaanite tribes lived there and they were going to have to be either eliminated or displaced for, Israelite, for the Israelites to ultimately live in the land and occupy that land. Now, when you read through this passage, as we did just a few minutes ago, you'll notice that it seems to indicate that Canaan fathered 11 sons, at least that were important to the narrative, two of whom are named specifically, Sidon and Heth, and the others indirectly in the names of the peoples which apparently derived from them, descended from them. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is go down that list and see what we do know about them and how they were influential as a people upon God's people, the Israelites. And as we do so, hopefully in our own hearts and minds, we will see a parallel to the struggles that you and I have every day. Whether it be at work or whether it be at play, whether it be sometimes, unfortunately, at church or wherever it might be, you constantly are running into opposition. Spiritual opposition, really, at the root of it. And so there are strong parallels. I don't mean that we should go around and say, well, that person's the Hivite in my life or the Jebusite in my life. In, in some ways, that's probably true. But nevertheless, the parallels are there. First, let's look at Sidon. Now, Sidon should not be an unfamiliar term to you. It's a modern term. Uh, the city of Sidon still exists over there in Lebanon. And uh, Sidon is considered to be the ancestor of the Phoenician peoples, one of the most important of the ancient peoples of the Near East. From the great seaports of Sidon and Tyre, you, you, you keep hearing and, and over and over again in Scripture you see the terms Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. These were the two most prominent seaports of the Phoenician people. Great uh, a commercial entrepot of the ancient uh, world. 
The Phoenicians would rule a 200-mile strip of the Levantine coast, of the coast of the ancient Near East, all the way from Akko in northern Israel to Ugarit, which is on the coast of what is today the nation of Syria. And if you were to follow up that coast and, and look at a map, uh, and I didn't get a time, time to put the map together I wanted to give you, but if you can kind of visualize the uh, coast along the Mediterranean there, Akko today is in the modern state of Israel. And if you go there to visit it, one of the things you go to look at are the medieval walls built by the Crusaders. And it's so fascinating to watch the waves actually crash against the medieval walls of that city. You wonder, how, how did they build this uh, great fortress right down so its foundations are below sea level? But, uh, of course, the ancient Romans developed uh, concrete that would harden underwater, so it shouldn't be much of a secret, I suppose. The, uh, if you go up the coast, you know, most of you are familiar with the missions here in California. And Junipero uh, Serra uh, had this dream of a rosary chain of missions which would stretch up uh, through the California coastal region. And ultimately, 21 missions were built. Now, if you go up the coast, you discover that the missions are placed at, at an interval. Uh, does anybody know or do you remember what that interval is? Why are the missions placed at the interval, at the intervals they're placed? Okay, they are basically a day's ride apart, not in an automobile, of course, but in a horse, on a horse. Uh, easy ride on a horse or a fairly uh, difficult day walking. They're about 30 miles apart. If you go up the coast of Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, you'll find something very similar to that. And beginning with Akko and ending with Ugarit, you'll discover that there's a major seaport about every 30 miles up the coast. It's kind of interesting. I'm sure that it wasn't planned specifically that way. They didn't say, well, we want a seaport, a day's ride from the next one. No, certainly that wasn't planned that way. But that's the way it has ultimately worked out. And several of them are important to the narrative as we talk about it here. The Phoenicians were a great seafaring people. They were the great rivals of the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks, of course, uh, traveled all through the Mediterranean world and the world of the Black Sea, but they discovered rivals out there, particularly as you get out past the world of the, of the Iliad and the Odyssey and you get into the first millennium BC, you discover that as they went to different parts, they found that the Phoenicians were there and the Phoenicians would establish colonies in various parts of the Mediterranean, as did the Greeks. Their most prominent colony was the great seaport of Carthage, which was established in North Africa, right across the strait there from the island of Sicily in what is today modern Tunisia, around the year 800 BC. And uh, the great city of Carthage would at one point in time be the greatest single commercial center in the whole Mediterranean world. Fantastic city. And of course, the ruins of that city are still there. And the outline of the great seaport that was built is still there today. It's a ruin, and of course, no city exists on the actual spot today. These commercial people were particularly noted for their manufacture and distribution of uh, royal purple fabric. And uh, they gained uh, the color from a mollusk that lives in the Mediterranean. And they were able to get this dye and, and they developed a consistent color. Uh, 
uh, for their fabric, and they peddled this all over the world, and, that is, all over the Mediterranean world. And uh, so they became known as the Phoenicians, which has the Greek root of people of the purple. Purple people. <laughs> Not quite. <clears throat> now, What's important to the Israelites was not their commercial nature, their, their, their naval power, or even their sale of this purple cloth. What was, they sold many other things besides, but they were most known for that. But what was most influential upon the people of Israel was the pantheon of gods that the Phoenicians worshipped. At the top of the pantheon, of course, were the well-known Old Testament god and goddess Baal and Ashtart, which were a fertility, com comprised a fertility cult, with Ashtart and Baal being consorts, more or less, of one another. And there's many uh, uh, varieties of both all over the ancient Near Eastern world. In fact, if you go back to ancient Sumer, you'll discover that the concept seemed to have been born in the uh, god Enlil of the ancient Sumerians, who became the god Asher of the ancient Assyrians. And it seems like you can almost trace the lineage of this god to Baal or Baal of the Phoenicians and the varieties known as Chemosh and Molech and, and others of neighboring peoples. It's, it's as if the concept was uh, came from a mold. It was as if there were a mind behind this. Uh, well, there was, of course. The same evil mind that tries to control the system of the world today. Now, in the scripture, there are some really important uh, Phoenicians. The two best known are Hiram. Remember Hiram? He was the king of Tyre. Hiram may have been a title and not a name. But in the days of David, in his last days of his reign, and then in the days of the reign of Solomon, Hiram, king, king of Tyre, uh, was a friend of David and Solomon. And uh, he saw to it that workmen and resources were brought for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem and for the great uh, palace of Solomon. And we know of the cedars of Lebanon and other things. They, they drug the wood down from the Lebanon mountains and they put it on rafts. They floated it down to Joppa and then possibly there they sawed it up and then carried it up to the heights to be part of the construction of the temple and the palace. Probably better known and best known, though, of all the ancient Phoenicians biblically was Jezebel. It's kind of interesting, is it not, that um, you'll discover that Many biblical names are used, even today, to, to name children. David, huh, very common, right? Uh, Peter, huh, Ezekiel even. But you don't run into too many Jezebels. It's sort of like you don't run into too many people named Judas. Uh, there seems to be a negative connotation there, and as a result, the name is not commonly used uh, today. I don't know anybody who's literally called, I mean, named Jezebel on their uh, birth certificate. But Jezebel was the daughter of a priest king from Phoenicia. And she married Ahab of Israel, 
and together with the priests that she imported, polluted the land. I, I didn't put these passages on the outline, but let me just turn to them quickly. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It was a small thing for him to chase after Jeroboam's golden calves, which were to substitute for the Israelites so that they wouldn't go down to Jerusalem to worship. On top of that, he adds the sin of marrying Jezebel, the daughter of the priest king of the Sidonians. What does this ultimately uh, result in? Well, of course, it results in the pollution of the land spiritually, but it also results in one of the greatest encounters between a man of God and the forces of hell on the planet in the Old Testament days. Now, we're not going to go through all that whole story, but if you just turn over a couple of chapters to 18, i like to read uh, a little bit here. Verse 16, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab. Remember, Ahab was looking for him, and he sent his servant Obadiah, who happened to be a godly man, to look for Elijah. And when he found him, he was afraid Elijah was going to disappear again, and uh, he'd have a hard time explaining to Ahab, yeah, I found him, but I don't know where he is. But Elijah promised to stay put. He went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. They were, they were in her personal pay. They were her confederates. They were the people she went to for direction. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now the point, of course, is that the land had become so polluted by the worship of Baal and Asherah that the worship of God was hardly known. 
And when Elijah gave them the option to choose, they didn't say a word. None said, yay, hooray for Jehovah. <laughs> no. They didn't know. And so they were going to wait to see what happened to discover whether or not to worship Baal or to worship God. I mean, God had proven himself over and over and over again, almost ad infinitum, from the time they left Egypt to this very day. And yet they didn't know if he really were, was there. It's sort of like what comes into our hearts from time to time, right? Things are going along and we worship and we praise the Lord and everything is wonderful and then we hit a hard part. And suddenly things don't seem to go right. And we say, oh God, are you really there? Do you really love me? <laughs> Am I really your child? That's really no different from what the Israelites were expressing. They wanted to see some kind of proof. And of course they did. And, and we know the encounter there on the top of Mount Carmel. If you go to Mount Carmel today, there's a statue of what they believe, of course, Elijah looked like right there outside the little uh, monastery. And to me, it's really, it's, uh, it's a powerful statement. You know, Elijah might not have looked like that at all. It might have not have been that exact spot either. But the point is, it brings us back to that, that, that narrative and that encounter between the prophets of Baal, who were totally powerless before the God who was real. Why were they powerless? Well, let me just read a passage to you from Isaiah chapter 44. It's, it's one of many passages. But to me, this is, I mean, this shows something of God's, what, what word do I want to use here? It's sense of humor, sort of, but it's very serious. Isaiah 44, 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. <coughs> Surely he cuts cedar for himself takes a cypress or an oak, and he raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also takes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it a graven image, and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, the other half of the log, he makes into a god, his graven image. And he falls down before it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. And I've always thought, you know, the humor here is just amazing. You take this log. And you chop it in half and you make one half into firewood and the other half into a god. What if you took the wrong half of the log? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing re reverts back ultimately to pantheism. The idea that, you know, if you've, if you've watched Star Trek and some, I'm not Star Trek, but um, the other one, Star Wars, the idea of the force, you know, the force is here, the force is there, and the force is with you, and the force is against you. Forces in the walls, the forces in the planets, forces wherever. You know, there's this whole pantheistic idea which is at the root of Hinduism and Buddhism and, and all of this. 
the whole idea in, behind reincarnation. Uh, that's what's behind here. And so it doesn't really matter which half of the log you take because the God is there, the force is there, the spirit is there. And we're, of course, a part of that same spirit, right? It, this even comes into, quote, Christianity, if you use the term in a very, very broad sense of the word. Those who say that there's a little flame of God inside of every person, all you have to do is fan it and it will burst forth, you know, if you've ever listened to Christian science and some of that kind of stuff. Um, it it's all reverts back to the same basic concept of pantheism. And it's all garbage, of course, clearly. Scripture makes it obvious that that is true. The God we worship is a personal God. He is a being that we can converse with. He's not in the walls and, and in the water and in the trees. He's not animistic. And yet, that's what they were worshiping. And of course, it was pulling them down. Now, there was a great hook in the worship of Baal and Asherah, or Ashtart. And the hook was that it was sexually related. The sexual perversion that went along with the worship of Baal and Ashtart was, was, was everywhere from, from what would be very appealing to that which was very gross. And, and that was the big hook that pulled people in because it appealed not only to the desire to know something beyond oneself, but to a great drive that is in mankind. And between the two, people were easily sucked in. You know, if a god comes along and claims to be God and says, just let your passions go and it's worship of me. And the other one comes along and says, control your passions. He says, I've made your passions for a specific purpose. They're not to just be used any old place you like. Well, which is easier to follow? What's well, obvious? And so it was with ancient Israel. So the Phoenicians would be extremely influential in the history of the development of the Israelite nation. Secondly, we have Heth. Heth is believed to have been the founder of the Hittite nation, which established a great empire in Asia Minor in the second millennium BC. Now, it is believed by historians that it was the Hittite people who introduced iron as a major uh, uh, substance for making tools and weapons. Now, we know from biblical passages that iron use goes way back in history, but it seems to be the Hittites who, who uh, introduced that at least to surrounding peoples of the ancient Near East. Now, we know that Abraham had an encounter with those who were called Hittites in the book of Genesis. In chapter 23, we're told about an interesting encounter between Abraham as he was attempting to buy a place to bury his wife. Chapter 23, verse 3, first of all, it says simply, Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. And, of course, he's bargaining for the cave of Machpelah. Verse 10, Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, and the bargain is made for the purchase of the cave of Machpelah. And of course, if you go today to the city of Hebron, you'll discover that over what is supposed to be the cave of Machpelah, and probably is, has been built a large structure. Most of the uh, outside appearance is uh, Herodian, 
But of course, modifications were made in Crusader days, and it's a very interesting place to go uh, to uh, think that Abraham and Sarah and others of the patriarchs possibly are their bones, at least their dust, are still underground there. One of the best-known Hittites of Scripture was Uriah. And we know about Uriah. He was one of David's mighty men, but unfortunately for him, he had a very beautiful wife. And David uh, let go into a period of lechery in his life and succumbed to the temptation that the enemy brought along. And Uriah paid the ultimate penalty in this life, at least, of dying because of David's lust. Now, there is some question as to whether the Hittites referred to here in Genesis and then in the narrative having to do with Uriah are the same Hittites as occupied Asia Minor, built a mighty kingdom, left behind the great ruins at Hattusis and other places of their great kingdom, and then, of course, were tremendous rivals of, of Egypt and conquered Babylon. In 1600 B.C., the Hittites overwhelmed the ancient Amorite uh, city of Babylon. Now, whether these were just some kind of colonists from that place or not is not really known. The Hittites are not very well known yet. They've only been known to historians for a little over a century. And so possibly, as more research is done, we'll know more clearly what relationship existed between the Hittites of Asia Minor and these of Scripture. Thirdly, we have the Jebusite. Now, this name and the following eight names are names of tribal groups and not specifically of individuals, not saying, though, that, let's say, Jebus wasn't the name of an individual, very probably was. But all we have are the tribal names. And why the change from Sidon and Heth to tribal names well, it's not clear in Scripture at this point why that change was made. But it's very possible that the reason is because of the importance of the group to the Israelite nation overshadowed the significance of the individual founder or ancestor. <coughs> now, the Jebusites are very, very important to Israelite history. Because the Jebusites had a city that was sort of their principal city. And that, of course, was the city which we know historically as Jerusalem. First chapter of Judges, verse 21. And the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, that is, to the day of the writing of the narrative that you find in Judges. Immediately north of the city of Jerusalem is a plateau, and that plateau is often today referred to as the Plateau of Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah came together. Those two tribes came together close to the place of uh, the site of Jerusalem, their tribal boundaries. 2 Samuel, though, tells us how the city became important to the Israelites. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now the king, this of course is David, 
and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, thinking, David can't get in this city. It's too strong. The walls are too powerful. That was a very tiny city, of course, compared to modern uh, Jerusalem. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. This is, of course, tongue-in-cheek. Through the water tunnel, therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. <laughs> they, they, ch they chided David. They teased David. You know, even the blind and the lame could keep your army out of here. We're so secure in here that uh, the, the, the crippled of our society could defend this city. And so David, tongue-in-cheek, is basically saying, well, the, the crippled got into the city. And uh, if you go today to the, um, to the tunnel that Hezekiah drove through the rock later on in time uh, to, to provide water inside the walls of the city, it, when you go in through the entrance at the place called the Spring of Gion, you'll discover that there's a shaft to the right. And uh, that is thought to be the Jebusite shaft that was sunk from the old walls into the water source there. And that David discovered, although they had blocked off the outside, the water still, some of the water was coming out, they had pulled the rocks aside and had found that water shaft and had entered the city through the water shaft. Sort of, uh, you know, almost like uh, the Trojan horse type thing where the, you got inside the city by a ruse. In this case, it wasn't a ruse. It was just finding a route inside uh, the city of Jerusalem. But you'll notice that the city was taken from the Jebusites, and David made it his city, his capital, the city of David. Now, he wanted to do that at least in part because if he were to have chosen any of the existing Israelite cities, he would have had to have shown favoritism. At least the other tribes would have viewed it as favoritism had he chosen a city that was already an Israelite city to be his capital. So by going and capturing a Canaan, Canaanite city, a pagan city, nobody could say he was playing favorites. He took a city to be his capital. And, of course, it was the Jebusite who paid the price. By the way, the Jebusites weren't totally eliminated. Because if you go to the book of Ezra, and of course the events described in Ezra occur after the Babylonian captivity, hundreds of years after David's time, you'll discover there still is a statement in there about the people of Israel following in the ways and marrying into Jebusite and uh, you know, Perizzite and Amorite and Canaanite families. Fourthly, we have the Amorite. This tribal group is a little bit more difficult to isolate than some of the others. Some of them were apparently very, very tiny. And as we get towards the end of the list, there's almost nothing we know about some of these people. But the Amorite uh, people were originally uh, one of the Canaanite tribes that lived in greater Canaan. But as time passed, they became more numerous and widespread than the others and became so widespread that they ended up clear over in Mesopotamia apparently. And you'll discover that often the term Canaanite and Amorite is used interchangeably, almost as if they're synonymous. Well, the Amorites were descended from Canaan. Uh, and so in that sense, they of course were. 
but it seems like often the term Amorite and Canaanite is thought to mean the same thing. Now, according to ancient historians, the people of the Mesopotamian world in their literature referred to a people called the Amaru. And that is thought to be specifically the term Amorite. This shows up in their literature. The Egyptian records show the same. And the Amorites, we discover, gained control of the hill country on both sides of the Jordan Valley. You know the Jordan Valley just drops really deeply, the, the, uh, the ravine there, the, the Graben as it's called uh, geologically, that stretches from Lebanon and of course goes off into the Red Sea. Uh, there's hill country on both sides of that. And the uh, Amorites came to control both sides of the river, which meant, of course, they controlled the river in between. And this gave them a very, very strong position. And that's why it was very important for the Israelites when they ultimately came from Egypt to break that power on both sides of the river uh, in order for them to have the river as their border, uh, at least in part, and to have it running through their land uh, early in their history. The Amorites became major opponents of the Israelites in their early history. Now at least one branch of the Amorites ended up clear over in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And they established what is called the Old Kingdom or Dynasty of Babylon. In other words, Babylon originally, of course, was subsumed within the Sumerian culture and also was within the great empire of Akkad. But later on, uh, the Amoritic peoples moved in from the desert and they gained control of Babylon. And Babylon, the old, old dynasty, would rise to a peak of glory during the reign of one of the Amorites whose name was Hammurabi. And we know quite a bit about Hammurabi because some information has come down through secular records of his existence. And not only that, there's a black stele that has existed which has some of Hammurabi's code written on it, his law code of that particular day, a kind of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth type law code. And uh, the, he built an empire that was about as large as the Sumerian Empire was at its height, which would be Oh, it, today it would mean it would constitute about half of modern-day Iraq, maybe half of modern-day Iraq, the southern portion. They also established, uh, established themselves at a place called Mari, and they also became very important in uh, Syria. Now, if you go to your concordance and you look up the name Amorite, you're going to discover it shows up a lot of times in the Old Testament. But some of the more interesting references I have uh, given to you there on your outline, and let's just look at them quickly. Genesis chapter 15. Now we'll be talking about this uh, in more detail a few Sundays from hence when we get to the 15th chapter of Genesis. But uh, Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And we know, of course, that's to be the Egyptian uh, sojourn. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then 
in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And of course the term is being used synonymously with the term Canaanite, simply referring to all of the pagan peoples who lived in the land of Canaan who were being given 400 years more by God to turn from their wicked ways, to turn to the living God by whatever means he chose to witness to them. Remember what it tells us in um, Ecclesiastes, I believe it is? It says that God has set eternity in their hearts. Every person has a sense inside of something greater than they, uh, than he or she. And it is through that that God begins to witness. And of course, we read in Romans, the first chapter, about the testimony of the creation. So there is a witness there. And yet the Amorite, of course, as we know, never changed his way and ultimately would suffer the punishment as God would bring Israel into the land. Now Psalm 135 talks about some specific Amorites. Psalm 135, beginning at verse 8. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and, upon, and all his servants. And he smote many nations, and he slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, which was also an Amorite kingdom, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as an heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, is everlasting. Thy remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Sion and Og were those who stood in opposition to Israel as Israel came out and had wandered through the uh, Sinai desert for 40 years and they were now getting ready to enter the land and they had circumvented Edom and Moab and they came up against the kingdom of the Amorites to the north. And of course, Sion of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan, they didn't want the Israelites there, even though there was the testimony that the God of these people was the true and the living God. He had worked fantastic miracles, preserved this, this nation in the desert for all these years, and yet their hearts were hard as iron, and they would not allow Israel to enter their land, and as a result, God gave Sion and Og into the hands of Israel and they destroyed these two Amorite kingdoms there on the east side of the Jordan River in what is today the modern country of Jordan. They destroyed those kingdoms and of course it became the homeland for Reuben, Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh and they would live there and that would be thus part of the inheritance that would be granted to them. Ezekiel chapter 16 this is kind of a funny one, sort of. Kind of a biblical name-calling. Ezekiel 16.1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, 
Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. <laughs> I mean, the whole, what's, what it's talking about is extremely serious. But it's kind of interesting, you know, that the Lord is saying to them that spiritually your, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Of course, referring to the pagan, uh, God-hating elements that Israel faced in the days of the conquest of the land. Again, the term Amorite being used in a generic sense of the word and even the, the, the name Hittite, too. Then finally, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. I'll just, I'll just read it. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, which means the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the most powerful passages of the whole Old Testament, much like the encounter that Elijah had on the top of Mount Carmel. Choose this day. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Quit riding the fence in between. Be committed. And that's what Joshua is saying here. Choose. Choose the gods that that uh, existed to our ancestors before they came into the land of Canaan, before Abraham came out of Ur. Or choose the gods of the Amorites. Again, the term Amorites being used generically to refer to all the pagan peoples who lived in the land, synonymous with Canaanite. But as for me, for my house, we will choose Yahweh. We have also the Girgashite, now, the name Amorite, as I mentioned to you before, is used 87 times in the Old Testament, whereas Girgashite only shows up seven times. Now, where they lived in Canaan is not even known. It only can be assumed. All we know is that they were a people who were dispossessed by the armies of Israel as they entered the land one of the many tribal peoples who would be pushed out of the land, destroyed, dispossessed by Joshua's army. Now, the Hivites, who are mentioned next, we do know more about them than we do about the Girgashites. We know, for example, that they lived in the mountains of Lebanon, that some of them lived on the southern slopes of Mount Hermon, and also that they lived near Jerusalem just to the north, slightly to the west of the city of Jerusalem. Now, there are three rather significant events in the Old Testament involving the Hivites. First, in Genesis chapter 34, this, of course, is, is before the conquest, so there, it wasn't as if Israel had failed to drive them out. They hadn't been brought in to drive them out yet. There wasn't a nation yet of Israel. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. And if you remember the story, they came in and they were a little bit upset. Uh, they were defending their daughter, and if you remember the whole story, <laughs> there's both humor and, and sadness in the, in the story of uh, the destruction of that Hivite community because of the rape of Dinah. So the initial encounter with the Hivites was not a good encounter <laughs> for, for Jacob. And then we have in Joshua, the 11th chapter, one of the great battles of the conquest of the land. Joshua chapter 11, the story of the battle of the waters of Merom. Joshua 11, verse 1, Then it came about when, when Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the north, in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinneroth, that is the Sea of Galilee, in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor, on the west, that's over on the coast, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Mount Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out in all their armies with them, as many people as the sand on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And of course, they were crushed and defeated. So the Hivites were a major contributor to this, this great battle, the battle by which the north was won. They had fought a great battle in the south, now they fought a battle in the north uh, to destroy the Canaanite power for the occupation of the land, and that battle is called the Battle of the Waters of Merom. And then finally, the story we all remember so well, even from Sunday school, uh, that is, young Sunday school, I would suspect, the story about the Gibeonites and their trickery. Nine, Joshua 9.3 And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they also acted craftily and set out, set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. <laughs> Must have looked like a bunch of, of uh, drifters. And all the bread in their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua in the camp, uh, to the camp at Gilgal. Now Gilgal, if you picture uh, Israel, was down in the Jordan Valley, not terribly far from what is today Jericho and what was then Jericho. And he said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said, Your servants have come from a far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he has done and had done, all he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. 
So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This is our bread. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provision out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. And behold, now behold, it is dry and become crumbled. These wineskins were filled with new, and behold, they are torn. These are clothes, our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of the provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. So the Hivites would remain in the land. The Hivites would not be destroyed. Yes, they would become water carriers and servants to the Israelites, but they would be there with their pagan beliefs to be a temptation to the people of Israel. All because Joshua, the man of God who was chosen by God, didn't seek God's counsel, which tells us a whole lot about what prayer ought to be in our lives. A daily, moment-by-moment -moment occurrence. And we shouldn't make decisions of import. I mean, you know, whether you use ketchup or mustard on your hot dog probably isn't uh, a thing of, of great uh, uh, celestial importance, but when we make choices in our lives that can have a long-range impact, we need to seek God's guidance, which Joshua did not do. Seems like a far-fetched story, doesn't it, when you think about it? If these people are so far away, why are they worried? But anyway, the Hivites. The Archite is mentioned only twice in Scripture. They are thought to have lived in the area of Phoenicia. There is a tell, an uh, old city ruin, uh, north of the city of Tripoli on the coast of uh, Lebanon, which is called Tel Arca, and is thought to have been their city. The Sinite, as in the case of the Archite, is mentioned only here and then in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 1, where uh, all of this is recounted again. And, it's always, and in both cases, it's always mentioned in association with the Archite. So they probably lived also in Phoenicia. Now, the Arvidite is very similar. The only thing is we do know something about the city of Arvid. Uh, we know its location on the Phoenician coast. And we also know that there is a passage of Scripture which does make reference to that city. In Ezekiel, I'll just turn to it quickly, chapter 27, we have reference to the city of Arvad, in verse 8, and the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers, driving the uh, ships of commerce for the king of Tyre. And verse 11, the sons of Arvad and your army were on your walls all around, talking about them being in the service of the Phoenician, of the king of Tyre, uh, for his defense, for his naval power, and so the city of Arvad was uh, an important Phoenician city. The Zemurite is uh, mentioned only in the same passages as the previous ones, and again, exactly where they live, we only know probably in Phoenicia. The Hamathite, ah, uh, there is a city of Hamath. The city of Hamath is located up in the western part of modern Syria, and they were on the list of cities to be conquered, although outside of Canaan proper. And we know that the city of Hamath was later made tributary by David and Solomon. And later on after that even, would be recovered by Jeroboam. 
I'll just turn to the passage in 2 Kings that makes reference to that. 2 Kings 14, 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the Kings? The last verses of this passage in Genesis are simply describing the territory <coughs> geographically which was occupied by the Canaanite tribes. And basically what it is describing are the countries of Phoenicia, the southern part of Syria, the western part of Jordan, and of course the land of Canaan. In terms of modern territory, again Israel, western Jordan, southern Syria, and Lebanon. That's the region that the Canaanites originally occupied. And then a special reference is made to Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities there on the plain south of the Dead Sea because that would play a very important role in the narrative uh, that would come a little later involving Abraham and Lot. Next Sunday, we're going to finish the 10th chapter of uh, Genesis. We're going to look at the Shemites, the Semites, if you will, and uh, some very, very important or interesting, at least, uh, comments which are made uh, here relative to what was to come up, particularly uh, the 25th verse, which makes a statement that uh, commentators are still <coughs> divided over to sort of... Uh, take off from that particular verse. Any questions? We went very quickly. Yes, Alan. Oh, they were, they were acting very wisely, yes. It reminds you of the passage in the New Testament where Jesus you know, commends the person for going out and when he gets fired, taking care of everything out there so that when he leaves the job, he's got some friends. Sort of the same kind of concept, yeah. The city of Gibeon, that is Tel Gibeon, uh, is an interesting place to, uh, to visit. The big, uh, the big well is still there, the uh, stairway all the way down. And it's a very interesting uh, place. Very close to Jerusalem, so... It's important for them to uh, sort of subject them. And of course, later on, there'd be a tremendous problem that would result from misdealing with the Gibeonites that uh, would cause God to intervene. 